listener production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. They don't want you to solve a crime. They want you to find their daughter, son, brother. David Plumpton is arguably Tasmania's most decorated detectives. He'd never say that himself. That's just the type of guy he is. But his body of work, his commitment to protecting the Tassie community and the work he's doing post-retirement is impossible to deny. David's modest, and that's probably what made him such a good detective. What I mean by that is you'll hear in his conversation a very special skill that he had during his time as an officer. That unique ability to gain the trust of criminals and have them disclose key facts or even confess to committing the crime itself. Really incredible stuff and rare to see, quite unordinary. With David, we go into three of his most memorable cases. One of his first homicide cases where a motive was almost impossible to find. Then a case where his ability to gain the trust of criminals was key to a conviction. And finally, later in his career, when he was investigating police and corruption that was rife in the New South Wales Police Force. David, great to meet you, mate, and thanks so much for joining us here. I'm going to describe you, David, as, and I mean mm-hmm. this with the nicest possible, a classic old school copper. David, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how I would describe you, mate. Thanks. Um, yep. I read with real interest um, a number of the numerous high-profile cases that you're involved in, and uh, I'm not from Tassie myself, yep. David, but I will confess to having a connection. My wife, born and bred down in Hadspin, so uh, just out yes. of Launceston, and is a nice I, spot. I would say that I, there was a familiarity with some of these cases and also, of course, the locations that you worked in and around. David, I'm going to wind the clock right back. My understanding yep. is you joined the job in the mid-70s. You'd have been a fresh-faced young um, recruit, wet behind the ears, no doubt. I was a cadet. Yeah, and, yeah uh, they'd uh, introduced cadet courses into the, Tasmania Police. Yes. And uh, 16 years of age, I joined Tasmania Police. Oh, goodness, wow. 16. Is that right? Yep. Goodness yeah, me. Yeah. Geez, you look at that age, I mean, 16. Yep. New Zealand police, I used to have the, the cadet system and the recruit yes. system, but then they yes. dropped the cadet system. Those guys used to train for 18 months, and then yep. those guys went in at 17. I, I went in as a recruit at 19, and, and yep. I look back at that, you know, you're just a kid, aren't you? And I mean, you, so you would have graduated from there at age 18. I was 18, 18 years of age. Only just old enough to go into the pub. Yep. 18 years of age, walk out the door and you've got all these powers and responsibilities. You yeah. think you're bulletproof and they give you a gun as well. And mate, so, you're, going, you're going to domestic disputes with people the age of your parents. I'd never even exactly. had a girlfriend or anything, mate. And you're walking in there no. to try to solve all the problems of the world. <laughs> no, yeah, unbelievable. And uh, I suppose that's why they don't have it now. Yeah, too young, way too yep. young. And David, again, sort of, you know, looking back through a bit of gear here, you were very, very keen from an early uh, oh. time to go from general duties, uniform across to plain yep. clothes, uh, CIB, Criminal Investigation Branch. Yeah, look, I remember when I came down for the interview to join Tasmania Police, and I've told this story to a few people, here I am sitting on this bench at police headquarters with another fella, Daryl Hind, who'd come down with me for the interview, and in walked two detectives. 
with their jackets over their shoulders and they walk past me. And I remember a <laughs> 16-year-old looking at them going, wow. And from that moment in time, silly as it sounds, all I want wanted to be a detective. Yeah. Even during training, no one else wanted to be a detective. But for some, I had this thing, I suppose, this bug, and I wanted to join the CIB. And I did. And I was real happy with that. But looking back, I probably went there too early, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, policing is a serious job. Policing is a great job. And you're doing a lot of really good. And that's why you're there, I suppose. But when you go to the CIB, every job is significant. Mm. There's no time to smell the roses. When mm. you're a uniform copper, traffic, general duties, wandering about, there are moments when you laugh and uh, yeah, joke. Yeah. You still do that as a detective. Yeah. But the degree of seriousness, I measure it like this. When I was a uniform copper and if I turned up to a serious crime, I'd stand there and guard the scene. Mm. Mm. A week later, I put on a suit turn up to a serious crime, and a sergeant of police would say to me, what do you want me to do? <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. And that's, I've got no doubt that still happens to a degree today, but that was the change. Yes. And having said that, no regrets. I was lucky. Yeah. I got into the CIB and thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. You talk about the days in uniform as a young bloke driving around. And yep. My memory of it too, mate, is, is one of the great things about policing, and particularly like you say in those general duties cars is, you just never knew what was no. going to come through next. Never knew what no. was going to be around the corner driving those night shift cars around, and there, there was something special about that. Oh, look, I loved it. And I loved um, if you were with another young bloke who had no knowledge, mm. that was even greater. Yeah. And you'd be hanging off the radio. You'd tend to notice when you're with some of the older coppers who'd been out quite a while, they weren't hanging off the radio yeah. and they weren't answering the radio straight That's away. So there was this divergence between well, the eagerness and the experience. What's the old yep. saying, mate? You'll run to a fire, walk to a fight. You know, exactly but when you're right. a young bloke, you, you just want to be in there. Up, you're, up, yeah, you run into everything. Yep. <laughs> and you peel the onion back one more layer, David, and I mm -hmm. understand, and, and you've, you've said this a few times in an interview before, that... Um, you had a very uh, simple but quite honourable motivation behind oh. joining the police, which was simply to put you in a position where you could right wrongs, where you could sort of help people out. Is, is that yeah. yeah. When you're a copper, you notice that you can fix things. Yeah. yeah. You can right things. Yeah. Now, it, just, it doesn't just come to you. Like along the way, you notice that you're given this position, you're lucky enough to be the person who turns up and can do something. Mm. You can fix this mm. or you can take the weight of somebody else's shoulders, carry it for a while and help them for a period of time. Yeah. And so that stuck with me always how lucky I was mm. to be able to do that mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, even even being engaged with, you know, some of the toughest jobs you do in uniform are tending fatals and uh, yep. notifying next of kin. And, um, yep. yeah, but I guess you look at it that, even in this awful, terrible, darkest time for these families, you, yep. if you do your job to the best of your ability, you you can exactly you can, right. You know, you can help them in some in exactly some, right. Some You'd never promise them the world, but mm. what you could say to them, particularly to death, you would deliver a package to a coroner or to a court mm. that, in time to come, they would be able to sit back and understand what had happened to their loved one or yeah. family or friend. Yeah. If you did your job to the nth degree, you would support them. Now, maybe not directly at the time, even mm. though they'd expect things from you, you were still in a position that over time, maybe 10, 20 years later, they can go and read the coronial report mm. and understand what had happened to their family, loved one or whomever. Yeah. But 
you were given that opportunity. And um, so I was lucky in that regard, real lucky. Now, David, all of us, every copper, where you've been in the job 10 years, 30 years, every copper remembers their first lockup. And I would imagine every detective probably remembers their first homicide. And, um, oh, yep, yep. Yours, I think, if the research is correct, 1985, so you've been yes. in the job maybe 10 years. You're still a yep. relatively young bloke. Yours was an elderly gentleman, I think, who simply yep. went knock at the door, answered, answered the door, and uh, got stabbed, stabbed in the yep. stomach. Mate. Just walk us through that. Just, just oh, briefly so touch on that, because this, this is your first homicide. Look, I'd been to other homicides, but as a junior detective yes. or a uh, – you'd uh, – you were responsible for exhibits, for taking statements, for doing other bits and pieces. This yes. was the first one where I actually conducted the interview and submitted the file. And what was outstanding about it was, well, not outstanding, an 83-year-old man was living in his house in Somerset, which is a town on um, a suburb of Burnie on the northwest coast of Tasmania. I transferred back to the northwest coast. I love the northwest coast. I'm up there as a detective. This gentleman answers a knock at his door and... A fella we identify later to be Dean James Kemp just stabs him straight into the stomach with a boning knife. The knife impinges on his backbone. Kemp walks away, leaves Mr. Stutter lying in his door. His wife comes out. He ends up in hospital, unable even to make a dying declaration and um, obviously passes away at the hospital. And no motive. There's no understanding as to why, where, when or what had occurred. Cut in a real long story short, the investigation continued for a period of time and was coming to a dead end because we couldn't get, in particular, a motive. No one had seen anything. Eventually, it turns out there'd been a party, and when I say party, I don't mean a major or a significant 20 or 30 people, but a mm. about a dozen people at a house down the road having a few drinks. Kemp was a family friend who'd gone with his girlfriend to that party. At some stage during the evening, he says, later admits to us, that he had thought he would like to see what it was like to stab somebody, to kill somebody. <laughs> so he just picked a boning knife up out of the kitchen, walked out, walked around, went to a house, knocked on the door. Now, if you or if a 16-year-old had answered the door, it was an 83-year-old man, came to the door and he plunged the knife into him and killed him. Um, so... Uh, you, what you learn is there are motiveless crimes. Everybody's looking for what for yeah. a period of time. Everybody's looking why him, why this, why that. There was no why. Did he have any ridiculous. any previous at all? This this no no. no oh, sorry, he'd stolen a motor vehicle. And don't you notice mm. that? Mm. Um, quite a few people I interviewed and charged later on with uh, murder had a history of motor vehicle theft. That's interesting. Mm. But having said that, look, uh, Dean James Kemp. Lived at Wynyard. He'd been interviewed. Statement had been obtained. The investigations have been completed to a degree by a number of other detectives. Then the detective inspector asked that I and another person review, go over it all, and we go and start picking up people again. I'd spoken to Kemp previously in passing, and he'd indicated to me how he'd been at the party, and we got a statement of that effect. Fine. Thank you very much. Anyway, I pick him up from Wynyard this day, and we're bringing him into Burnie because we're going to go through everything one more time. And he just all of a sudden says, oh, by the way, I did go for a walk that night. Which night's this, Dean? Hmm. The night Mr. Studdard was stabbed, I went for a walk. Oh, you hadn't told us that before. And from that moment in time, hmm. you had a feeling that um, maybe we're going to get to the bottom of this. And we did hmm. when we came in. Um, so 
so much to learn about that because so many young coppers forget when you speak to somebody, there is a distinct possibility if they're a criminal or they're engaged in certain behaviour, you're going to speak to them again. Mm. Always talk to somebody and deal with somebody with the respect whereby when you talk to them again or you meet them again, mm. they will remember you as a person who they can talk to, they can trust, and you treated them well. We spoke to Kemp on that first occasion and spoke to him. He, obviously for some reason, we just were able to build a rapport with him on first occasion, second occasion. He does confess to a um, unprovoked, yeah. ridiculous murder. And Dave, just to put a, a spotlight on that, this is very much, I think, a reoccurring theme with a lot of your cases that you're involved in, the cases that you're in charge of, the skill that you had, the ability that you had to talk to folks and, in essence, for folks to tell you things that they uh, possibly wouldn't tell others. That's the big thing, isn't it? That's mm. about, well, no, various detectives have various skills. Mm. Mm. But some are good at door knocking, digging up things, finding out things, doing other bits and pieces. Others are anally retentive and just can go over everything, cover everything in minute detail. Mm. If I had any skill, the only skill I had was the capacity to get somebody to tell me something they may not tell others. Yeah. See if this makes sense. Coppers, detectives in particular, they sell you jail. When you speak to a detective as an offender, the only thing that detective can do for you is to send you to jail. Mm. If you tell him anything. Mm. So why would you tell him anything? There has to be some reason. And there, there's a lot of psychologists, a lot of psychiatrists will say why things bubble in people's heads. Mm. But if you can be the conduit for them to come out, say what they have to say, not necessarily the whole truth, but they still manage to tell you, confess, admit, make some um, indication as to their knowledge, then you're going to be a lot better off. And, you know, it's you can't underplay that as a skill. I think that you talk about, you know, different coppers, different detectives having different skills, but, you know, fastidious note takers and yep. blokes that are just these crime scene sort of evidence experts. And even even though, you know, you work with, with blokes, I remember working with young coppers that had this like encyclopedic knowledge of the Crimes yes. Act and the law. For mine, the greatest skill that you can take into an investigation is the one that you've done, that skill of communicating, getting someone to talk. Yeah. And David, would you agree that, that you can't teach that? No. That's an innate, you've either got that or you haven't. You do Which, that. Yeah. And, yeah. and as well, I think it can be your appearance that you're not threatening to them all mm. the time, but just doesn't apply to getting people to confess to things. I always learned this. Mm. When you're speaking to somebody, human source information is the best. Mm. An ounce of information is worth a ton of investigation. Mm, so mm. if you tell me something, if you are able to tell me something about somebody, it may save months. Yeah, Listening yeah. devices, telephone intercepts, all of these type of things that we spend weeks, months, hours on installing mm. everything like that. But if one person comes forward or that person comes forward and says, not only did this happen, but hey, when they're talking about that block of wood, they don't mean block of wood. They mean this, that, and the other. They yeah. mean heroin. They mean cocaine. Yes. They mean amphetamine. So I always thought the management of informants, mm. human source management was 
oh, look, I'm probably building it up because it's the only skill I had. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm making it sound tremendous. I think there's, a, there's, a lovely, there's a lovely quote that I heard you um, give a, a while back, and I, and I may misquote you here, David, yep. but um, you said that some of the crooks that you've worked with and spoken to have put more people in jail than a whole lot of detectives had. Yeah, <laughs> significantly. I mean, that's, that's sort of, I think they that have. sums that skill up. And, you know, David, the folks listening to this podcast uh, have probably watched a fair bit of, um, you know, cop shows on TV and yeah, what yeah, have you. Yeah. And, but just a reminder here, as a detective, even as a uniformed copper, when you're sitting with somebody and you're going to interview them or take a statement yep. from them, for that statement to be admissible in court, that conversation starts by you actually telling them that they don't have to say anything. Exactly right. And whatever they do say will be used in evidence. So you're exactly. sort of starting by saying to them, look, say if you want my advice, don't say anything. You know, yep. um, In your experience, and goodness me, you know, of course, not everybody, not everyone talks. Those that do, what is it that make that camp? He's driving in the car with you. Now, that's another interesting thing too, David. You're not sitting across the desk staring at each other. No. You're in the car. You know, I've got a, a young son, daughter. It's like, you know, when you can you can have a yarn to your kids when you're driving and you can cover stuff that you wouldn't probably exactly chat about right. across a table. Exactly was right. That, was, that a, was that something that you did? You know, you went for a drive with that bloke and you just started to open up. Yeah, look, in all the manuals you read about interviewing, they talk about uh, get them into the office, uh, mm. do it on your ground and all this type of thing. That's mm. great if you're going to confront them. If you know what you're going to confront them with, then yes. you're going to be like that. And the art of war says about um, don't fight a battlefield on someone else's battle and all this type of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, <laughs> maybe, just maybe on occasions, if you want to get to the truth of something or you want somebody to tell you that little bit be prepared to sit in the car and talk about it. Mm, Be mm. prepared to listen elsewhere and don't make it too uncomfortable for them. Some police or some interviewers have this thing. They want you to clearly understand that they are in possession of all the facts, mm, they are mm. knowledgeable, and you are just whomever who has to tell them. Yeah. And I have been in the presence of, when I was in Victoria in the National Crime Authority, we went to Pentridge Prison and interviewed a well-known criminal. Well, interviewed. Mm. We put things to him. Never opened his mouth. Mm. Never spoke. Mm. Did, was polite, nodded, mm. sat there, wasn't rude or anything like that, mm. but I never heard him say a word. Now, the person I was with who'd gone with to Pentridge Prison highlighted how that particular person he'd only ever heard speak two words in his life and that was in court, not guilty. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, um, yeah. so here I am telling criminals how to do it. Shut yeah, up, don't speak case. to the police. But for some reason, if there is a possibility, give them that chance to tell you. Yeah. You know, ex-cop with your experience would also, I think, um, have had plenty of opportunity to investigate situations where you might have one key offender, but you've got a couple of associates, a couple around them, yeah. and they bloody love, they love to chat to each other, don't they? They love, they love to, and, and you know, yep. there's a sort of a, an honourable code to a degree, but if a bloke thinks he can get a bit of a one-up by talking to the coppers and get his nose in well, front Absolutely, of, they'll do that. Absolutely. Um, there's been murder investigations. Well, yeah, even... From the outside looking in, you can see how uh, murder investigations have been concluded because information has been obtained from other offenders. There is no loyalty. Mm, mm, mm. Loyalty is to themselves. Yeah, 100%. And if they want something, what they believe is loyalty, they will sell and they will sell to you. Mm. For uh, when people get charged, they'll try and do a deal. They'll come in if there are rewards, and not necessarily rewards, but opportunity to benefit themselves. 
people may come in. Or you give them the opportunity. You provide them with the opportunity. Now, not through harassment and all that type of thing, mm, but mm. you are there and you're in a position that they can escape the grief of their life by confidentially, always confidentially, I found initially, telling you what exactly happened. And on a lot of occasions you become aware of information you can't do a lot with because it relates to something that would immediately identify the person who's told you. But the skill of developing those people into telling you things so that you can then be aware of what occurred, be aware of what inquiries conduct, goes back to that again, ounce of information, ton of investigation. Let's just circle back to you're a, a relatively young detective, that homicide involving tragically that elderly gentleman. Yes. You're doing all the work, then you knock off, you go home. You're 28. Um, yeah, yeah, yep. It's got to have an effect on you. Oh. Now, I know it does. I know it might do. It's never really affected me, and I've been really lucky in this street. I'm a lucky person. Mm. I honestly think I was a lucky – here's an example of how lucky I am. When I went to school, I was a 3.5 out of 10 type of kid. Right. I ended up marrying the 10 out of 10. That's how lucky I <laughs> you, am. You and I both, so, mate. We've done well yes, there. <laughs> so, you know, but that is luck yeah. because you're in the right place, right time, all that type of thing. Now, yeah. I always – this is when I say luck. For Mr. Stuttered being murdered at Somerset in 1985 – I was lucky enough to be able to meet his wife and be able to meet his family and be lucky enough to eventually provide them with some outcome. Mm. And this is one of the things that impacted upon me the most. It's not so much the death and destruction, but missing persons. Mm. So the only time I've ever really been emotionally drained is when I'm dealing with the family of a missing person. Mm. Mm. Because it's the unknown. And, yeah. and it's not they, something that you've been able to resolve for them. Exactly. Yeah. They rely on you that much. Yeah. They don't want you to catch an offender. They don't want you to solve a crime. They want you to mm. find their daughter, son, brother, mm. father. And so many of them, many years later, we did a cold case review of a missing person here and I distinctly recall how dealing with the brother of the lady, body never found, but still 40 years later in the street he'd see someone and think that's Lucille. Mm. He'd hear mm. a knock on the door, is that her? Mm. It's incomprehensibly can't be her. Mm. So for me it wasn't so much um, people talk about fatal accidents, people talk mm. about death, mm. it was just... The emotional pain you witnessed in somebody, that hurt the most. Right. But yeah. I've been lucky that it was never it never stayed with me. So and I know a lot of others do, and I don't mm. um, I'm currently president of the Retired Police Association of Tasmania and we're trying to pursue mental health outcomes and make them better for members who have retired using an argument. If they break you, they can fix you. Mm. But I'm lucky it's never happened to me. I do come across quite a few uh, first responders, uh, ambulance, fireys, police who have suffered. But again, I'm lucky it hasn't happened to me. David, let's fast forward. There's another case that um, you've spoken about in the past. It's uh, 2012. So 
pretty yep. seasoned detective at this stage and um, probably I'd say you know, really honed your skills in that environment. And, and as you alluded to before, you know, everyone has different strengths and, yep. and yours was very much that ability to talk with offenders, communicate with them and, and give evidence as a result. This was a uh, homicide, in fact, a double homicide. Just give us a brief um, overview of that one. <sighs> Angela Hallam, Joshua Newman got together, Angela would sell drugs for people and was selling drugs for a gentleman by the name of Marco Rusterholtz. Marco Rusterholtz lived in Launceston, was a white supremacist and um, a powerlifting, violent individual who trafficked drugs. But Rusterholtz formed a relationship with somebody else who was jealous of a previous relationship he'd had with Angela Hallam. So Angela Hallam was on the edge of being a person who um, Rusterholtz's new girlfriend, bearing in mind Rusterholtz had eight, nine children, was married to a lady in Launceston but had a girlfriend, a number of girlfriends, and the girlfriend he had in Hobart was be jealous of his previous relationship with Angela who, as she continued to sell drugs in the same circle, would tell people that she could have Rusterholtz if she wanted him. But she also stole a significant amount of drugs from Rusterholtz. Rusterholtz... As the court found, he still denies, murdered Angela Hallam in a flat in Launceston. At the time, her partner, Joshua Newman, was there and he ended up stabbing Newman to death. He then tried to set fire to the uh, unit, left. Crime had occurred in Launceston. I'm at Glenorchy, where Rustholtz moved to, which is about 200 kilometres away. He'd moved down there. So you had Launceston CIB in the north of the state managing the crime scene. It was their investigation. But because Rustholtz had moved to Hobart, we were managing investigations associated with him and his associates down here. And we soon became aware that he had a number of associates, some of whom I'd met before, some of whom I had a working relationship with, and we were able to go and see. Initial investigations, highlight Angela Hallam, drugs, all the associations, but shortly thereafter, Rasterholtz moves to Hobart to move in with his girlfriend. Hmm. When he moves in with his girlfriend, there are a number of other lesser-known criminals hanging around, but his wife and kids then moved to Hobart as well to be near him, would you believe? And here's an interesting thing. You talk about people giving information. Rasterholtz's wife never, ever, and you thought, she'll roll over. No, no, she never did. Mm. But a number of other of his associates who were members, one of them was a member of an outlaw, outlaw motorcycle gang, he, over a period of time, we were able to speak to these people. They, for some whatever reason, begin to tell us what had occurred. Our role was then to try and find a way turning that information into evidence. And as luck would have it, they eventually did give evidence against Rustholtz Rustholtz was charged with two counts of murder, convicted of two counts of murder. He still denies it and was sentenced to 45 years jail based on based on the evidence of, inf- well, not informants, but people who actually gave evidence. Mm. But that whole investigation was great between the two officers working together, but it revolved around this capacity for people to tell you things they mm. really didn't want to tell anybody. Now, this is a reoccurring theme, and uh, when I read through the court notes and what have you and a little bit of background on this, the three things that jumped off the page for me, David, with your involvement was that this Angela Hallam, you mentioned that her sister yep. reaches out to you 
to ask for your sort of, well, you know, what are you doing about this? My sister's been murdered. Now, look, when I read that, I thought, goodness, that is next level. I mean, the there's a sort of a strange respect, isn't there, David, when you get yeah. to the level of policing that you're at and you're dealing with some high-profile individuals, there's a sort of a, a strange sort of a respect yeah. there. And for them to pick up the phone and call you, can you sort of help out here and, you know, what happened to my sister? The other thing connected to that is the murder of Russ and Holtz. He actually reached out to you as well at some point, I understand, and said, look, I I hear you're wanting to have a chat to me. So you've got the sister of the deceased, you've got the bloke who was then later found guilty of killing her reaching out, and then you've got the Rebels motorcycle bloke also having a yarn to you. I mean, for mine, that just highlights the value of what you were talking about before, that, you know. We agree on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree on that, and I agree, and that was the big play I used to make about getting to know people. However, you've got to be very careful, and Mm. how do I explain this? You've got to be careful in that um, I always – Rust Holtz didn't want me to think poorly of him. Could Mm -hmm. you believe that? (laughs) because I'd met him before, I'd met them before. Um, Glenorchy, northern suburbs of Hobart, was when I first went there as a detective inspector. There were significant uh, crime families, and they bounced around the state, bounced around onto the mainland from their base in the northern suburbs, and did a number of things. But mm. so one of the first things is you've got to get to know them. Yeah, and yeah. this was my mantra for them. It's business, nothing Mm, personal. mm, mm. I am a detective. My job is to catch criminals. Your job, and I'd say this to them, is to conduct illegal behaviour. Now, if you're good at your job, you'll get away with it. If I'm good at my job, I'll catch you. But bear this in mind, I'm bound by the rules of the law. Mm. So you've got free for all. I've bound by legislation, the law, but... I will give it my best shot, but it will never be personal. Never, ever. Never did I make it personal. So there's another thing I always tell young coppers. When you charge someone, you go to court. I'm never there for the verdict. I don't sit in on that. Mm. I never go in for the sentencing because I don't believe in humiliating the person. Mm. So a lot of people will go and sit in because, hey, we've won the trial. We've won this. We've won that. Now we'll sit there as they get sentenced to X number of years jail and all this type of thing. To me, that was personal. Would you view the fact that your job has been done, David, by getting the case into court? Then yeah, it's we've like, done right, it. We've I've given done my job. The... Now it's up yes. to the DPP. It's up to prosecution yep. and I'm off. Yeah. 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 You'd, look, I'd still always want to so-called win. I'd still want that guilty verdict and of you'd course. want to avoid any criticism on your investigation or anything like that. But I wouldn't sit there whilst someone was sentenced mm. and look at them because for them, that is the humiliation. Mm. And- even if you don't believe they've got dignity or whatever, leave them with some level of dignity so that you're not a person they recall as feeding off their mm. dignity. And that worked for me. Yep. Bearing in mind, other people might view it that because you're talking to these people all the time, um, detectives shouldn't. And I'm aware, clearly aware, that there are a significant number of police officers, uh, people within the legal framework who don't like coppers talking to crooks. They view it as a um, breakdown in the system. Mm. I argue that there are certainly enough rules and regulations around doing it properly, and if it's done properly, it is significantly beneficial to policing. So I used to do it. Others may argue totally different. And Listeners, people out there might say, oh, no, 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 you can't be doing that and have a totally different view. And that's why 
in an investigation, you'd have people with that view so that they could do the things that mm. I wasn't concentrating on mm. and I'd benefit them hopefully by doing the things I could concentrate on. We've gone from that first um, homicide that you ran yep. and then there's a double homicide there, 2012. Um, a third case that I'm just really interested in your take on, we're going pushing forward now to the 1990s, Woodrow Commission that um, – oh, yeah. Some yep. that have been around the block a few times will, will have some yep. knowledge on. This was an internal investigation into a joint drug trafficking task force, which was um, task force made up of New South Wales coppers and uh, Australian Federal Police. Yes. You got a tap on the shoulder to come up from Tasmania. You were embedded here in New South Wales for 12 yes. months. Yep. So now you're investigating bent oh, coppers. Yeah. How was that? Was that, that, was that something you had to think a bit about? It's, um, yeah, it's, you did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and you shouldn't have to. But to be totally honest, you didn't like the idea at all, mm, um, mm. investigating police. However, what had happened, the Wood Royal Commission had been set up to look into the New South Wales Police. There was a joint drug task force involving AFP, New South Wales coppers, and Wood discovered, or his investigators did and people did, that there was significant corruption within that group of individuals. People had rolled over, as was the term at the time, highlighting to Wood what had occurred. So they would did not have under the Royal Commission the um, powers to investigate the AFP. So they set up a commission of inquiry into the Australian Federal Police mm-hmm. under Ian Harrison, who was a QC at the time. And in fact, Ian Harrison was a judge who recently uh, found Chris Dawson guilty. So Ian Harrison was head of that inquiry. Wood recommended Tasmanian coppers come up and so myself and Glenn Frame came to Sydney to assist the Woodrow Commission by investigating the Australian Federal Police, the Commission of Inquiry. Mm. Now, already things had rolled over and people were in shock about the level of corruption. I'll give you an example and there's some philosophical issues I have with this overall. So the difficulties associated with expecting someone to be purely honest and do what they did. There are other things we saw that had occurred and those matters we were tasked with reviewing, the level of corruption and illegality was such a level that I had no issues with investigating that. Mm, mm. This wasn't about minor, well, I suppose there's nothing minor about police corruption, but this was corruption writ large. They had thought they were better than anybody in anything. The ability to gain evidence to get a successful prosecution here is exactly the same principles. Exactly. So you're then relying on coppers yep. coughing against other coppers, rolling Absolutely. over. And, uh, and they did. Walking into an interview room with someone across the desk who's uh, sat on your side of the desk, I mean, no one's suggesting that they should be treated differently or anything else. In fact, you, no. you, know, you could argue come down tougher because they've abused the position yes, of power, yep, whatever. accept all of that. But as an individual yourself and a long-term police officer walking in there, that must have Amazing. been an interesting dynamic, David. You're sitting there in the presence of somebody who had joined just like you had, mm, mm. had been this innocent. Yeah. Uh, and you can see, yeah, clearly, but something had occurred along the way. Mm. Now, whether that was they saw money, they saw whatever, or they just... I've got to say, when one domino fell, they all began to fall. And, and you'll notice yeah, that, yeah. yeah, they gave evidence. And, mate, it's like a fish rots from the head down, doesn't it? And, yep. and a lot of that would have been driven by some fairly senior coppers because that's, oh. that's not something that junior coppers are going to, you know. And there's a lot yep. of pressure on those junior guys not to not to call it out and well, you've you got, you got to cut that off at the head. Exactly right. right. The I mean, look, yeah. I think that's been seen um, – Queensland, New mm. South Wales, Victoria, mm. wherever that level. And we're talking about high-level corruption and we're talking about high-level criminal activity committed by police officers. When you're talking about that, 
it is just extreme criminal behaviour. Forget the coppers. Mm. You, you go back to Tasmania after 12 months. Yep. Anything about that 12-month experience that changed you, changed the way you policed or changed your view on anything, David, or did you just pretty much no, treat it as you would of any other criminal investigation? It was the same apart from you learnt the lesson. That is, whatever I do today, I've got to be happy. It'll be judged in 20 years' time mm. and still be thought of as being decent, honourable or, you know, reasonable, so to speak. So mm. Mm. I did learn that. I did learn very quickly that you are judged by the relevant time when a matter is reviewed as opposed to when it occurs. Mm. You're looking back over a, a very distinguished career over a long period of time and I think I, I noted somewhere, David, you made a comment, I, it really resonated with me that you said, you know, often the attention, the media and everything else, the police focuses on these high-level crimes, large investigations yep, yep. where you can have, you know, dozens of detectives. You've got, you know, oh, yeah. na- nowadays you've got forensic, you've got everyone involved. Yep. And generally, those high-level investigations end up being solved, going to court, and there's a yep. lot of resources thrown into them. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. You look back over your career, you said some of the things that really were more of a highlight for you in some oh, regards yeah. were some of the lower-level stuff. And, and it goes, and we're circling back around to something you said right at the, you know, at the kickoff there that um, it's having that capacity, maybe even just as a young copper in uniform, to knock on someone's door where yep. something's happened – there was an incident involving, I think, an elderly lady with a letterbox that you yeah, mentioned as being one look, of those things that resonated with you. This is the power of the blue. That is, people want to see that blue. They don't want to see it when they're in trouble, when they're committing crime. But I remember as a copper, there was an old lady lived in a house and had a letterbox smashed. And um, a lot of the times, uh, police wouldn't attend. It was vandalism. A number of letterboxes had been smashed. Mm. And, yeah, they just take a report. Anyway, I visited her. What I noticed was this had changed her life, albeit it was winter. But by four o'clock in the afternoon, she was locking her doors, pulling her blinds down and removing herself from society because she was frightened, all because of, well, maybe not all because, but her letterbox had been smashed by, from her watching TV, the thugs were out there doing all this type of thing. Now, Mm. a number of things happened out of that in that she had changed her life. And what I always remember... Her children would phone during the day, during an evening. They would get really distressed that their grandmother was that frightened that she locked herself in a house mm. and was missing life. And they would blame the police for not creating or looking after their grandmother, not creating a society mm. where she felt comfortable. But I was able to resolve all of that by spending time with her in that blue, with yeah. that blue uniform. Giving her the confidence, like, this isn't like that. Now, yeah, yeah. I've got to say, I never worked out who smashed a letterbox. Right. But what I noticed was, hey, listen, we made this right. Yeah. We made her feel better. And it only took a couple of visits. Mm. And afterwards, you go past and you see her and everything like that, and you mm. got her out of the house and you made her feel far more comfortable. Other occasions, I remember when I was a detective inspector here in uh, Glenorchy, there's a group of clever young girls. They'd go to the local shopping centre Watch old ladies walk into the toilets. They knew they'd hand their handbag on the um, hook at the back of the door. Mm. They'd go in, boom, grab the handbag and go. Mm. In the end, the ladies wouldn't go shopping. And it changes the whole environment. Same in the mall. Things occurring in various areas. If you've got elderly people willing to come in and enjoy an atmosphere, it makes it a lot safer. Now, when they don't... Yeah. <sighs> We can do something about that. I was able to do something about that just because I was a copper. 
and just by talking to someone and spending time with them. So when I left Tasmania, I used to spend a bit of time with a street cleaner, Steve, down here when I was in Hobart and the lady who sold flowers and another cleaner for an arcade. When I left Tasmania Police, they gave me a card, uh, Miriam, Margot and Steve, thanking me for um, everything I'd done, but for making them feel safer, Tasmania Police making the place safer. Mm. Now, and Steve took me for a coffee into a takeaway shop, worst coffee I've ever had, but he paid for it. <laughs> Lovely man. Yeah, yeah. But that's when you realise, hey, by doing these little things, yep, forget yep. about these big investigations. They will invest. Everybody will jump on board there. Yeah. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody jumps in there and we get paid to do that. And it is a great thing to do that. But mm. the greatest thing is some of those little things where you're able to help somebody who otherwise thought they were lost. And it's just seeing that blue, or if you're in Victoria, black, that um, yeah. seeing that uniform and that uniform doing something for you, taking the edge off the evil that you feel exists. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great, mate. That's, that's such an interesting insight from somebody who's worked, oh, goodness me, you know, the resources thrown behind the Wood Royal Commission and everything else, and, and here we are talking about an early ladies' yeah, letterbox. Yeah, but you and, do, don't you? And, and that's why you do that stay yeah. with you. Yep. David, you've moved on. You're retired now, Detective yes. Inspector retired. Um, you mentioned your present Tasmanian Retired Police Association. That yep. must be something you're quite passionate about, I'd imagine. Oh, look, it is. It's a good position. Um, I enjoy it. I enjoy it because it keeps me in co- like when you leave policing, you don't miss the circus, you just miss the clowns in it. So <laughs> I've ended up being able to hang around with the clowns because I'm in the Retired Police Association. It's not just for retired members, it's for ex-members, but... More importantly for me, what I've done in recent times, I was on the parole board for a period of time, I finished that. But as a result of that, I met quite a number of victims. There's a group we formed called the Survivors Empowerment Forum Tasmania, who are victim survivors of crimes of significant personal violence. Mm. Our president was a lady who was abducted, her partner was murdered, and she was tortured over 36 hours, raped and tortured. Another lady is our um, researcher. She was made to dig her own grave but managed to, um, things changed and she managed to survive after being raped and tortured. So what we're about is making sure that we advocate for the survivors of crimes of significant violence because as we talk about these, Brent, we're always talking about the offenders and who did this Mm, and the coppers mm, and everything mm, like that. mm. But don't we forget, don't we forget the victim survivors. Yeah, that's a, that's such a valid point, David. And the yeah, world yeah. goes on and they're expected, mm. and I've heard this said to me, people say, oh, they should get over it. Well, stand by. <laughs> we're about to get in your face. They're not getting over it. Yeah. And if you get in their way, we're going to run you over. Yeah. David, look, mate, it has been such an absolute pleasure to, to meet with you and have a chat. No, you thank know, you. It's, they often say, mate, you know, blokes like yourself, you know, when you look at coppers of your vintage and experience and uh, they broke the mould, you know, after you, after you left the job. But <laughs> yeah, just, mate, I, 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 I just say that, um, you know, I hope for the sake of the Tasmanian police and the, and the good people of Tassie there that, uh, that they haven't broken the mould and that there's a few others coming through in your footsteps, mate, with that same passion and skill and, you know, that motivation. I appreciate to, you saying that. Legitimately to rot the wrongs. And, and, mate, I, and I say with absolute sincerity, um, David, it's been a pleasure and thank, thank you, you so very much for your service. All the no, very, no, thank you. Thank you very, very much to you, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. 
It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.